Let's open our Bibles to Proverbs as we do make our way through the scriptures. Got to 12 and 13 on Wednesday night. I'm going to touch on just three verses this morning in chapter 14. I've entitled this His Way. Verse 12, chapter 14. There is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Even in laughter the heart may sorrow, and at the end of myrrh may be grief. The backslider in heart will be filled with his own ways, but a good man will be satisfied from above. One of the things that we've been pointing out about the Proverbs, sometimes referred to as Hebrew poetry, just like the Psalms, is that there's contrasting thoughts. There are these couplets that come one against the other, and by doing so, it establishes a thought from two different perspectives, and they're called couplets, parallel couplets. And we find that here best demonstrated in verse 14 this morning, where it talks about somebody who is a backslider, and the attitude of his life is he's simply his own man. Uh, He's like Frank Sinatra, he's gonna do it his way, and that's pretty much it. Contrasted to the man who is a good man, uh, will be satisfied from above. In other words, there's the certain contentment um, that comes when a person has this relationship that comes from up here rather than trying to fill a person's life with the things that are happening down here. And therein we've seen the contrast. One brings satisfaction. Another um, is led by a man's Uh, own personal wants and his own personal desires. Contentment is priceless. Somebody want to say amen to that? Contentment is priceless. Many think it's in their success in their jobs or making a lot of money or getting their name in the Hall of Fame or being a part of the PGA Tour down by Whistling Straits or whatever. And um, But contentment according to the Bible, Paul speaking to the Philippians, said, not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned, it's a learning process, that whatever state I'm in, to be content. He went on to say, whether I'm rich, I'm content. If I'm poor, I'm content too. If I'm getting beat up and thrown in jail, well, last week we talked about them singing psalms in the middle of the night. They were content then. To Timothy, his protege, he said, Timothy, with food and clothing, with these things, be content. He says in Matthew, um, The Gentiles, they're the ones that are all hung up and worried about what are we going to wear? What are we going to eat? What are we going to do? But don't let it be so among you. Jesus said, wherever your heart is, that's where your treasure is going to be also. In Hebrews, let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Now that's from above. So the contentment that the satisfied man has here, the good man, in Proverbs, is one who uh, has found his, his satisfaction. I can't think of that word without seeing Jagger up on a stage singing, I can't get no satisfaction. <laughs> and he's tried and he's tried and he's tried. It's just not there. It's amazing that they're still out there at their age uh, singing that singing that song, but the fact of the matter is he still hasn't um, found it. What is a backslider? Let's go back to the first one. A backslider is simply filled with his own ways. A backslider is simply a person who once had a walk with the Lord, but left it to pursue his own ways instead of the Lord's ways. And he came to a crosswords in his life. He had once known the goodness and the sweetness and the fellowship of the Lord, but he, uh, uh, he got caught up, he got sidetracked, he started looking over here and over there, thinking maybe I'm missing something. And because of his own wants and desires, he became what the, it's Christianese, you know, when we say a backslider, a lot, of, a lot of people who aren't Christians or no Christianese aren't familiar with the term being backslidden or a backslider. But the bigger question that comes when you bring up the term a backslider is the deeper implications which are 
what that person, will that person be saved in that backslidden state and has he lost his salvation? Did he have it at one time? By backsliding, did he lose it? What I'm about to enter into this morning is one of the most controversial theological debates in, Christ, in Christendom. Calvary chapels try to avoid conclusions, terminologies, and arguments which are not clearly presented in the Bible. In no area of controversy in this approach is more essential than the long simmering debate between Calvinism and Arminianism. Some of those are new terms for you this morning, so my goal is to, there's only five points on both sides, so before we can discuss it, I have to lay it out for you. So before we discuss what happens to the backslidden believer here in the book of Proverbs, we have to look at doctrine. Uh, We should get our answers and our theology. You'll notice that both of these terms, Calvinism, comes from a man named John Calvin. I don't believe the man was saved, and I'll talk a little bit about that a little bit later. He was a complete ruler and dictator of Geneva in his time. He enforced uh, church attendance. And um, I'm just going to leave it at that. You can do your own homework on it. He's not personally responsible for the five points of Calvinism. But I am going to put them on screen, and we are briefly going to go through these two very different um, doctrinal distinctives, one called Arminianism. And um, let me just tell you a little bit about Jacob here. Perhaps no issue is as important or as potentially divisive as the doctrine of salvation, how a person obtains salvation. Uh, Reflected in the debate between followers of John Calvin, not John himself, but his followers, 1509 to 1564, and those of Jacob Herman. Although Jacob was trained in the Reformed tradition, Arminius, and that's his Latin name, which where we get Arminianism from, seriously began to doubt the doctrines of sovereign graces taught by the followers of Calvin. He was a pastor of the Reformed congregation in Amsterdam in 1588, and during his 15 years of ministry there, he began to question many of the conclusions of Calvinism. So with that being said, we're going to put up on the screen at this point the five points of Arminianism. And I want to just tell you that this did not come about quickly. There was over 130-some sessions, men getting together, uh, debating this, coming through with it. And um, I want to emphasize that it's not the five points of the Bible, but it's the five points of Arminianism. When I say Calvinism, I'm talking about not the five points of the Bible, but the five points of Calvinism. My goal this morning is to take each one of these distinctives, free will, conditional election, universal atonement, unobstructable grace, and falling from grace from the Arminian perspective, compare it to Calvin, and then simply go through where we as Calvary Chapel fall as we look at the scriptures and what the scriptures teach on these issues. All right. Uh, Are you ready? Here we go. As we start out, um, uh, we'll look at the five points of Arminianism. First of all, his take on free will. Arminius believed that the fall of man was not total, maintaining that there was enough good left in a man for him to accept Jesus Christ unto salvation. In other words, he's saying that he had a conscious ability to recognize this is right and this is wrong. The best way I would describe it, even for a non-believer, is you have a conscience. Even as a non-believer, you knew you did something wrong or you knew if you did something right. So his argument, if I would put it in layman's terms, is not that we don't have any choices in making free will, but that we have free will to choose uh, the gospel And that would be the first point. Conditional election. Well, Armenians believed that election was based on the foreknowledge of God 
as to whom would believe man's act of faith, which seen as the condition of his being elected to eternal life, since God foresaw him exercising his free will in response of Jesus Christ. Now, when I, ta- when I go through every one of these point by point, we're only going to go to, I can only take you to one verse when we give you our perspective, because there's so many. But the one that I'm going to take you when it gets here is basically what's being laid out. Does, um, is man predestinated? Now the Bible says that we are. And when you really get down to it and you try to rationalize these two points of view, it will drive you crazy trying to see that the Bible clearly teaches both of these doctrines. And I'll say this a couple times this morning. The only way, the difference between uh, Armenianism, the big one, and Calvinism, is that Armenianism, in Armenianism, uh, we have the free will to choose or reject the gospel of Jesus Christ. Calvinism says that that is not the case, that God is sovereign, and that he's predestined some to heaven and some to hell. This is where was a, a sharp area of contention between the teaching of election. Am I elected? Well, yes. And but only because God is omniscient and there isn't anything that he doesn't know. Somebody want to say amen to that? Is there anything that God doesn't know? Did he know did he know what you were going to choose? Well of course, because there's nothing that he doesn't know. So it's predicated when I say this that you have free will Yet you're predestined at the same time. Well, how can you rationalize that thought? Only, as it says, according to the foreknowledge, the omnipotence or all-knowing God who knew what you're going to do and therefore predestined you. And you're going, okay, Dwight, you're getting out there a little bit, and uh, I've only just begun. (laughs) Sounds like a carpenter song to me, doesn't it? (laughs) All right. Universal atonement. Arminius held that redemption was based on the fact that God loves everybody, that Christ died for everyone, and that the Father is not willing that any would perish. The death of Christ provided the grounds for God to save all men, but each must exercise his own free will in order to be saved. And we'll get into verses that will look at that one, number four. Obstructible grace. Arminius believed that since God wanted all men to be saved, he sent the Holy Spirit to woo all men to Christ. I would only add to that, in John's Gospel, it says that the Holy Spirit was sent to convict you of your sins. Woo, yes. And uh, he is the hound of heaven. And, uh, but he does so by trying to bring about your awareness of sin in your life and your need for a savior. But since man has absolute free will, he is able to resist God's will for his life. Uh, He believed that God's will to save all men can be frustrated by the finite will of man. He also taught that man's exercise of his own free will, and this is, and when he does it, this is when a person is born again. Um, I'm just thinking that's coming to mind right now of the frustration in Genesis 6 when the Lord looked and he saw that, that uh, all men thought about was evil at all times. And he only found Noah and his family righteous. Noah was faithful in his generation. But he saw the wickedness of men and what they chose to do. And evidently, there is that point. There is that line that can be crossed where the Lord says, okay, if that's the way you insist of exercising your will. I think of Romans 1 where it says, knowing there is a God, they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. It's not that they don't know. They suppress willingly of their own free will that I'm choosing not to believe in God. Why? I don't want anybody telling me what to do. If I become a Christian... I think there's guidelines there. There's do's and there's don'ts. And um, so we'll get into more of that also. But this would be a point of Arminianism. The last one, falling from grace. Now we get into the backslider. What happens to him? 
If a man cannot be saved by God unless it's man's will to be saved, then man cannot continue in salvation unless he continues to will to be saved. And again, I've just opened a can of worms as people have very strong doctrinal feelings on what we call um, uh, eternal security, which I believe I am. Um, I'm not sure about some of you, but uh, I'm pretty sure about myself. <laughs> I said that tongue-in-cheek. Please give me a, a, little, a little slack here. But uh, really, the Lord only knows. But we'll develop that thought even more as we go on. So there's your five points of Arminianism. Now I'm going to give you the five points of Calvinism, sometimes um, described as tulip, T-U-L-I-P, for total depravity, the T, unconditional election, U, limited atonement, L, irresistible grace, I, and the perseverance of the saints, P. They call it tulip. I should mention that in the realm of Calvinism, you will have people who are at different degrees in Calvinism. You might hear somebody say, well, I'm not a five-point Calvinist. I'm a four-point Calvinist. And um, to me, that's, there's a lot of irony in that. Let's go through them, and let's look at the differences now. They're up on the screen. The five points of Calvinism. Total depravity. The Calvinists believe that man is in an absolute bondage to sin and Satan, unable to exercise his own will to trust in Jesus Christ without the help of God. Number two, unconditional election. This is where it gets testy. The Calvinists believe that foreknowledge is based upon the plan and purposes of God, and that election is not based upon the decision of man, but the free will of the creator alone. And to me, this is one of the biggest and um, most contested uh, debates between these two different positions. In other words, you have no choice in your salvation. You're either um, unconditionally elected or you are unconditionally not elected. All right, L, limited atonement. The Calvinists believe that Jesus Christ died to save those who were given to him by the Father in eternity past. In their view, all for whom Jesus died, in quotations, the elect will be saved, and all of whom he did not die, the non-elect will be lost. It's referred to as limited atonement because it's only going to apply to those that God sovereignly chose before the foundation of the world to be saved. Irresistible grace, number four. The Calvinists believe that the Lord possesses irresistible grace that cannot be obstructed. They taught that the free will of man is so far removed from salvation that the elect are regenerated, in parentheses, made spiritually alive, by God even before expressing faith and Jesus Christ for salvation. If a totally depraved person wasn't made alive by the Holy Spirit, such a calling of God would be impossible. And there's some truth to that and some error to that. And the last one, the perseverance of the saints. The Calvinists believe that salvation is entirely the work of the Lord, and the man and that man has absolutely nothing to do with the process. The saints will uh, be preserved because God will see to it that he will finish the work that he has begun. Now, that one verse right there is one that we stand on and teach. We even sing it, don't we? He who has begun a good work in you, he'll be faithful to complete it. And so the emphasis on God started it, and so God's going to finish it. Now, if that's all there was to it, then you could make a strong case for it. Uh, my goal this morning is to simply go and explain in our movement, the Calvary Chapel movement, we have Calvary Chapel distinctives, and this is one of them. Where do we stand on the issue of Calvinism and Arminianism? And um, uh, we are somewhere, I don't want to say in the middle, 
I just want to say our answer is biblically based, and it's my goal this morning to take you through not an exhaustive study, because this is an enormous study, but at least give you key scriptures that you can be good Bereans and uh, check this out on your own. And there's a reason that I'm doing this um, that's entering our culture and society right now as there's a new Calvinism that's morphing, that it's coming to very, together very, very quickly, and as your pastor, I simply want you to be, be made aware of it and uh, the, the dangers that it poses to the modern-day church. It is not our purpose to take sides on these issues, to divide the body of Jesus Christ over human interpretation of these biblical truths concerning our salvation. We simply desire to state how we in the Calvary Chapel Fellowship understand the Bible's teaching regarding these matters. So ready or not, here we go. Have we laid it out pretty good for you so that you can at least see um, some of the distinctives between the, these two very, very different ways of a person obtaining salvation. All right, let's look at the first one. Uh, the depravity of man. And um, for each one of them, I'm only going to pick out one scripture. I'll quote many. But this one you can turn to the book of Romans, to Romans chapter 3. And I'm simply going to give you our perspective on it. So while you're turning... As we consider the depravity of man, we believe that all sinners, in Romans 3.23, are unable by human performance to earn, deserve, or even to merit salvation. In Titus, we read, we believe that the wages of sin is death, in Romans 6.23, and that apart from God's grace, no one can be saved. Ephesians 2 tells us we believe that none are righteous or capable of doing good. And again in Romans, we're in chapter 3, we'll all be taking you to. And that apart from the conviction and the regeneration of the Holy Spirit, none can be saved. And um, then we have First uh, Peter 1 uh, declaring, Mankind is clearly fallen and lost in sin. And I think that's something everybody here can agree on. But let's look at Romans 3. As they pull from Psalm 5, Paul writing to the Romans, picking it up in verse 10, he says, as it is written. Now what I want to point out here is, again, one-third of the scriptures is prophecy. The new Calvinists are avoiding Bible prophecy. They want nothing to do with Bible prophecy. I'll make a point of them being dominionists in just a little bit. But um, you can't get around Bible prophecy. You think, you say, sometimes when we say prophecy, sometimes people think of eschatology, which is the study of last day things. No, not at all. Prophecy is something that needs to be fulfilled that was foretold earlier. What you're looking at in Romans 3 verse 10 is prophecy. And it's a prophecy that's being fulfilled, making a statement where they're quoting um, Proverbs 5, as it is written, there's none righteous, no, not one. And there's not even any who really understand. There's none who really seek after God. They've all gone out of their own way. They have all together become unprofitable. There is none that does good, no, not one. Is that pretty clear? That's pretty clear. All right, let's turn the page to um, verses 23 and 24. Where it tells us, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Do you know that the word all in the Greek means all? <laughs> That's what it means. No exceptions to the rule. So this is a, a misconception that non-believers have some time when we talk about the necessity for salvation. Are you saved? Are you going to heaven? Well, well let me think about it. And you get the balancing act every time. Well, I've, I've done this many good things. I'm a pretty good guy over here, but yeah, but uh, I've done some pretty bad things at the same time. And you, you can see him weighing it all out in his mind. But here's the scale, gang. <laughs> this is, these, are, these are your... Bad deeds, these are your good deeds, you know. All have sinned. Paul says there's none righteous, no, not one. 
He also said, he also said that in me and my flesh dwells no good thing. So when we're talking about depravity, when Adam and Eve sinned, something happened. I believe they were clothed in light. I believe everything changed. There wasn't thorns, there wasn't thistles. They didn't have to work the land. It was all provided for. There was longevity of life. There was harmony in the animal kingdom. That was all perfect in the garden. And everything changed when the curse came. And uh, even in Romans we read, creation itself is crying, moaning, waiting for the redemptions of the sons of God, the whole universe. So in 23 and 24 it's clear, but in 24 we read, being justified freely. Well, we love to sing that song, justified. And it literally means just as though you've never sinned. When you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior, you are justified. And it's because God has given you his righteousness. I like to call it the great exchange. He who knew no sin became sin for you, that you might become the righteousness of God. What a great deal. God takes my sin and he gives me his righteousness. It's called being justified, justification. Now, we'll leave that there. Just so, I'll just give you one other verse from a young man that came up to Jesus one day and said, Good master, what good thing shall I do that I can have eternal life? And Jesus looked at him and said, Why do you call me good? There's none that are good. There's only one that is good, and that's God. Interesting who was doing the talking at the time, huh? But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. He had to get that, this guy's attention somehow. So he tried to show him that he thought he had kept the commandments, but he showed him clearly that he did not. All right, that's depravity. Let's go on to election. What's our view on that? Our view is simply the biblical one. And we find a balance between these two extremes. We believe that God chose the believer before the foundation of the world based on his foreknowledge, again, his omnipotence, and has predestined the believer to be conformed into the image of his son. Now, being conformed is an ongoing process. It's not justification, it's sanctification. Sanctification is what, when you go through a trial, you learn something, and you're being purified, and you see that the Lord got you through the trial. And uh, if he did it once, well, I think maybe he can do it again. And then he does it again. And before you know it, you've learned a whole new lifestyle. The importance of Bible study and, and prayer and fellowship and hanging with, with people that know and love the Lord. So it's a process of not to be saved, but to be changed and conformed into the image of Jesus. To be actually able to think like he thinks. He said, let this mind be in you, which was also in our Lord Christ Jesus. We believe that God offers salvation to all who will call upon his name. And um, the Bible says, for whosoever, who does that include? Whosoever includes whosoever, includes everybody. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. We also believe that God calls to himself those who believe in his son, Jesus Christ. However, the Bible also teaches that an invitation is given to all, but only few will accept it. Doesn't the Bible teach that? Many are called, doesn't it say? But few are chosen. I see free will all over the place here. Invitation is out. We see this balance through Scripture. Revelation 22 states, And whosoever will, let him take of the water of life freely. First Peter 1, 2 tells us, elect according to the foreknowledge. I'm going to make a big deal of this one and have you turn there. The Father, through the sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and a sprinkling of blood of Jesus Christ. Matthew 22, for many are called, but few are chosen, elected. God clearly does choose on one hand, but man must also accept God's invitation to salvation. I want you to turn um, for hopefully for memory's sake that this will be grounded in First uh, Peter chapter 1. So let's turn over there. Sometimes when we turn to the scripture and underline it, it 
it, as I've, I remember Chuck's stories in his early ministry days, he's trying to rationalize in his own mind that the Bible teaches both of these, so how can they both be right? So you know what he did? He took his Bible and threw it all the way across the office until it hit the wall on the other side. And he says, Lord, and I, can, I cannot rationalize these in my mind. And the Lord spoke to him. And the Lord said, who asked you to? And we're going to get to that too. Do you realize that the Bible teaches in Romans 11 there are simply some things past finding out? God and his wonder knew that there's things that are way beyond us and that uh, you're just going to have to faith it and uh, do your best on, on, on what the scriptures teach. The only way that I can rationalize my free will versus my being predestined before the foundation of this world, David said, before I was formed in my mother's womb, you knew me. You wrote down every day of my life, even before I was, even before a world was, and that's called predestination. All right, First Peter chapter 1, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadonia, Asia, Bithynia. Then he says, elect. You're elected, but how? According to the foreknowledge of God, the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and the sprinkling of blood and Jesus Christ. It's the only way I can, even in a little bit, wrap my head around predestination and my free will. And that God is sovereign. And that he is all-knowing. There's nothing he doesn't know. He knows who will. And he knows who will not come to him by faith. And so the Bible is teaching us here that he predestinated us according to his free, his foreknowledge in everything. All right, let's take it a step farther. Atonement. Atonement. We believe that Jesus Christ died Here's my, one of my favorite words, propitiation. And fortunately, we have it explained to us here, a, a sanctification of the righteous wrath of God against us, that Christ died as our propitiation. A holy God is a just God and is angry and wrathful with the sin of man, and it had to be dealt with. And so it was dealt with on the cross when the father turned from the son and Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Never being separated. Never being separated. Because there has always, they have always been. But there was this moment in time when they were separated. Sin separates people from God. And the Lord for that moment was. He died for the whole world. First John 22 uh, two and that he redeemed and forgave all who will believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ as their only hope of salvation from sin, death, and hell. Ephesians tells us in 1 Peter, we believe that eternal life is a gift of God. Romans 6 tells us that. And again, that whosoever believeth. That's going to be a big word in our discussion here. Whosoever and Jesus Christ will not perish, but have everlasting life. And of course, the most uh, famous one, I'll have you start turning there, is John 3, and we'll look through that. So begin to turn to John 3. And as you're doing that, I'm going to go to um, 1 Timothy 4. It says, we trust in the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. Hebrews 2.9 states that Jesus was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, notice, should taste death for every man, not just some, but every man. The atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ was clearly sufficient to save the entire human race. Well, everybody knows John 3.16 but let's take it to 17 and 18 also. And the key word here is going to be, let's read it, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, and here it is, that whosoever. 
that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Let's take it a step farther. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Now, he who believes in him is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. The work has been done. The ball's been thrown into our court. We can accept it or we can reject it. When you propose to your wife, you know, maybe you were a little on pins and needles. What if she said no? You know, and you were hoping she would say yes, but you. My point is, she had a free will. I am the bride of Christ. You are the bride of Christ. So that's the terminology he chose to use forever and ever and ever. I go to prepare a place for you. But if you're going to spend eternity with me, I want to make sure you at least like me. <laughs> or that, that uh, better yet, you love me. And he uses the bridegroom analogy. And every one of us here, you know, you've been there, done that. And you've asked that question. And it was a yes or there was a no. But my point is, it was a free will decision on your part. Love is something that cannot be forced upon another person. You either do or you don't. Amen? I mean, you either love the person or you don't love the person. It's that simple. Sometimes in the, in the marriage counseling, they're talking about, well, we have this quality, that's good. We got that quality, that's bad. And I said, are, are you done talking now? And they say, yes. I said, do you love her? <laughs> and that's really what it gets down to. Do you love her? And does, does, does she love you? And that's what this is all about here. God loves you. He's proposing to you. And if you will, then I want to make you the bride of Christ. Does he know what you're going to do? Absolutely. Do you know what you're going to do? No. We never, we never know when that change is going to come and, and when your heart is finally going to melt. I was talking to a brother last week, witnessing to a guy every day, and he said, today are you going to get saved? And he's one of those, not going to let you off the hook until you say yes or no. And the guy finally says, yeah, I want to pray today. But he was persistent and just kept on asking. And so is our Heavenly Father. He's persistent. And he will, he will hound you till the day you die because he loves you. He's not willing that any should perish, but what? That all should come to repentance. So, Verse 17 says, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but the world to him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. That is the issue of atonement. As far as what we see, the Bible teaching on this particular issue. Grace. All right. We believe that God's grace is not the result of human effort or worthiness, back to Romans 3. But it is the the response of God's mercy and love to those who will believe in his Son. Ephesians tells us, grace gives to us what we don't deserve, nor can we earn by our performances. And again, this is such wrong thinking in the world we live in today. The Holy Spirit's job is to point out your need for a savior is not based on our performances because all our performances are, as the Bible says, filthy rags before him. We believe that God's grace and mercy can be resisted by us. Jesus said in Matthew 23, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that kills the prophets and stones them who are sent unto you, how often I wanted to gather you as children together, even as a hen gathers her chickens under her wings, but you would not. Now just think this through. The Lord wants to do it, just like a a mother hen, and he's wooing them. He said, but you chose and you would not. We are not condemned because we had have no opportunity to be saved. Uh, But a person is condemned because he makes a choice not to believe. In John 5 we read, And you will not come to me that you will have life. Uh, He's speaking to the scribes and the Pharisees, religious people. 
And Jesus said in John 6, All that the Father has given me shall come to me, and him that comes to me I will in no wise cast out. We believe in the Calvary Chapel movement that uh, Jesus clearly acknowledges the fact of human resistance and even rejection when the gospel is presented to them. Just one scripture on this one. I want you to go to John chapter 12, just a couple more pages over. John 12, 46 and 48. I have come in as a light into the world, and here it is again, that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. And if anybody hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my word, which has which has that which, that is what judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. But the point of these scriptures here is clearly laying out that he came, presented, decisions were made, and if you chose against, he, didn't, he will not judge at that time. He will continue to try to save you. But the Bible says once to die and then the judgment. So that's what's being implied here. It will happen eventually. The choices that we make here do have eternal consequences. All right, perseverance. Now this is getting back to our original question from Proverbs. What about the guy, the backslitter? And what happens to him? Well, let's look. Perseverance. We believe that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 8, some of the most precious scriptures in the, in the Bible. Neither height, nor depth, nor power, nor principality, or anything created. Nothing is strong enough to pull you away from Jesus Christ. Now, that's comforting to me. But there is one little clause in that which gets back to the area of free will and choosing. It's talking about everything outside, outside, here, everything out there, there's nothing there. But what about in here? It doesn't mention that. And that's where we're headed. And there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8 verse 1 is preceded by Romans 7, which is Paul's um, confession. I'm so glad for it because he's being so transparent. He says, the things that I want to do, I don't do. The things that I don't want to do, I do them. I know better. And he says, who's going to save me from this wicked man that I am, oh, wretched man that I am? Who's going to save me? And then he says, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's how, that's how I think it's verse 25. That's how it ends. But then you have Romans 8, verse 1. It says, therefore, therefore, there is no condemnation. The devil would love to beat you up with the sins of your past life. But you can't if you're gonna stand upon God's word because there's no condemnation. Good time for an amen. That's good news, isn't it? Even though we would like to condemn ourselves for past shortcomings and faults, so you can't do it. There is no condemnation, period, for those who are in Christ. Now you wanna point out my faults? Enemy, go ahead. He doesn't... Revelation 12 says he does it day and night. But I got my defense attorney over here saying, no, I took care of that one. Oh, took care of that one too. Oh, that, oh, that sin too, that, I paid for that one. And as far as I'm concerned, he's justified. Father says court dismissed, he's innocent. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It goes on. Jesus said, we believe that the promise of Jesus in John 10 is clear. My sheep hear my voice, I know them, they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life. They will never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. Jesus said in John 6, him that comes to me, I will no wise cast out. How am I sure that Jesus, if if Jesus only knew how bad I really am, well, guess what? He really does know how bad you really are. But he says, if you'll still just come to him, he will in no wise turn you away. And then it says, being confident of this very thing, 
that he who has begun a good work will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. We believe that the Holy Spirit has sealed us until the day of redemption. All right, that's pretty cut and clear. Pretty much sounds like eternal security to me, right? This is why you have to have all the scriptures in view. That's why it's so important to teach chapter by chapter and verse by verse. Now, we are also deeply concerned over the words of Jesus in Matthew 7. And that's where I'm going to have you turn right now. Let's go back to the book of Matthew. Nothing can separate you from the Lord. Matthew 7, verse 21 says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. I thought you just said, Dwight, anybody who comes to him will. Well, there's a lot of people that come to him that never really have a relationship with him. So we read here, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. Doesn't that contradict what we just read? Not at all. But he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many mighty wonders in your name? In other words, they were involved with a good social gospel, doing good works in the, in the name of Jesus. But they weren't preaching the gospel. They were doing social works. Those are two very different things. And then I will declare to them, well, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So here is the ones that we have to pause and give concern. What about a person who has been in that place? Is, what if I gave my life to the Lord, but then in time of temptation actually backslid? Am I still saved? You know, Jesus actually told a parable about what I just said. Uh, It's in Luke chapter 8, and I'm going to have you just flip over there quickly. Luke 8. I'll just look at one verse here, verse 13, without, for time's sake, getting into the whole parable. Luke 8 is the parable of the sower, And he talks about the seed that he's sowing falling on four different kinds of ground. And uh, when he explains the parable, he says that the seed is the word of God. In other words, what we're reading this morning. And the ground is actually people's hearts. So people have different personalities. They have different temperaments. And when the word of God is preached, people can blow it off or people can hang on every word and accept it and soak it in. So the first one, the seed, that the seed, verse 11, is the word of God. Those by the wayside are the ones who hear. And then comes the devil and takes the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. So they heard it, but somehow it was undermined. I can't tell you how many times I've had somebody say, um... You know, I've been given an ultimatum. I've just become a believer. But my husband says, if I become one of those holy rollers, I am out of here. Ultimatums are given. Choices are made. Sometimes the wrong choice. So how does the devil work? In ways like that. Or, or maybe, it's, um, maybe it's on the job site. And you come and you're always hanging with the guys and going out and having a couple afterwards and living in the fast lanes with your buddies. And all of a sudden you get saved. And they go, what happened? You didn't become one of those holy rollers now, did you, Frank? And uh, all of a sudden, you start losing your buddies. And quite frankly, you don't want to lose your buddies. Which one of us here would raise their hand and say they don't like being liked? Do you like being liked? I like being liked. I had a button made during World War II that said, I like Ike. That was for me. Did you guys know that? We have a young crowd because nobody got that one. (laughs) Everybody likes to be liked. But Jesus said, know this, if they hated me, they're going to hate you too. Are you ready to take that on? That's what comes with it. Because you're going to be marked as one of those people. Not knowing that your only intention is to give them what you have. And they may not want it. So... That's, that's what we're up against. And then the next one is the one I want you to see. So this one here, he heard the word, uh, lest he should believe and be saved. He's not saved, because it says lest he should be. 
The next one. But those on the rocks are those who, when they hear, they receive the word with joy. Okay, so they heard the word and they believe it. Comma, let's just stop and think about it for a second. I believe the moment the thief on the cross said, Lord, believe on me, I believe he was saved. I believe the moment the woman caught in the act of adultery, when the Lord says, no man condemn you, she says, none, Lord. I believe at that moment she was saved. Would most of you agree with me? I believe at this moment here, a person who receives the gospel with joy, I believe salvation is instantaneous. I, I, I think of Cornelius and his family. I mean, Peter couldn't even get through with his Bible study, and they all got baptized in the Holy Spirit. They didn't even say the sinner's prayer for Pete's sake. What's your, what's your point? Salvation can come because God can see your heart, and the moment that heart is open, you are saved. And I believe here, if they heard the word with joy, salvation was there. But they have no root. That means they go on for a period of time. They didn't get involved with Bible study, or dinner six, fellowship with other Christians, church and prayer meetings, things that would root them and cause them to be strong in the faith. Who believe for a time. Well, my question is, are they saved during that time or not? And my answer would be, absolutely they are. But in time of temptation, fall away. At this point, I would like to have you turn to Second Peter 2. Second Peter 2, verse 20 and 22. And let's tackle the issue of eternal security head on. As this being one of the biggest divisions between Arminianism and Calvinism. Peter, in verse 20, says, talking about believers, for after, if after they have escaped the pollution of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and notice and overcome. And that word overcome is important here, but they're overcome by the world. The latter end is worse from them than the beginning, for it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. It has happened to them as a proverb, a true proverb. A dog returns to his own vomit, and a sow having washed to her, her own wallowing in the mire. The question therefore arises, which, which gets back to our original uh, question, and, and that is about our friend back in, in Proverbs. Is a backslider a person who goes back and he's filled with his own ways? The theological question, is that person eternally saved or not? And some would say, well, he's never saved in the first place. That's why I took you to the parable of the sower. Yeah, he was for a very, very short period of time. But I I try to explain to new believers, watch your back. The enemy's going to try to undo what you just did here today. And you're most vulnerable when you're a baby Christian because you're not rooted and grounded. You don't have that foundation yet. All right, let's see if we can start winding this up. How are we doing for time? Pretty good. It's not easy to maintain the unity of the Spirit among us on these matters. It seems that the sovereignty of God and human responsibility are like two parallel lines that do not seem to intersect within our finite minds. God's ways are past finding out. Please lock this in your head what I'm about to read. Some of you are saying, I just don't, I can't reconcile these two teachings. They seem to be diabolically opposed, yet I see the scripture clearly teaching both. Let me throw in Romans 11. This is Paul saying, he said, Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? 
Maintaining a Bible-centered balance of these difficult issues is of great importance. We do believe, now I'm speaking as a Calvary Chapel pastor, in the perseverance of the saints, true believers, and yet are deeply concerned about sinful lifestyles and rebellious hearts among those who call themselves Christians. Sometimes those with eternal secure bent have a very, very loose lifestyle, saying it doesn't really matter. We don't have all the answers to the matters, but we desire to be faithful to the Lord and to his, <clears throat> and to his word. So again, in closing, the question as we make our way through the Bible, a book on wisdom is a contrast. We have one guy who walked with the Lord, but then he was filled with his own ways. Is he saved? And then the other one, contrast, is a brother who's simply going along, just serving the Lord day by day, is satisfied. Where does the satisfaction come from? From above. What does it say? Every good and perfect gift comes from where? From the Father. And it brings great satisfaction and contentment. And we want people to see that. We want them to see that we have peace in the midst of turmoil, that we have confidence and stability of thought and mind because of the book you're holding in your, in your uh, laps this morning. Jesus answers the question to, the, to this backslider in Proverbs as he speaks to the churches, and this is where we will close this morning, in Revelation 2 and 3. So let's wind things up there. Turn to book of Revelation 2. And I want to put this in your mind. He is clearly speaking to born-again Christians. Seven letters to seven churches, written in 96 AD. John is the only apostle who's still alive. Everybody else has been martyred except John. Jesus appears to him, tells him to write seven letters to seven churches. In chapter 1, John has a vision of Jesus in his glory, and uh, in his right hand uh, are are seven golden lampstands. And the seven stars are the seven angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands, which you saw, are the seven churches. So here's John. He sees this vision, and there's these lampstands. Well, what are they? Well, they're the seven letters to the seven churches. These are churches. Now, the church of Ephesus, where do they have it going? founded by John, later pastored by Polycarp. And to this church, he says, I am the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. Jesus is walking in our midst this morning. Where I am, wherever two or three are gathered, I'm walking around. And um, he says, "I, I know your works, your labor, your patience. You can't bear those who are evil. You have tested those who say they are apostles that are not. You found them to be liars. You have persevered. In other words, they hung in there during the tough times. You had patience. You have labored for my namesake, and you have not become weary. Wow, what a resume for a church, huh? And then he says, nevertheless, I have this against you that you have left your first love. What does 1 Corinthians 13 tell us? Though I have the faith that I can move mountains, but if I don't have love, I have nothing. If I can perform miracles and raise people from the dead and have not love, it's nothing. And then he goes on to say three things. I call them the three R's in verse five. He says, remember. Remember from where you have fallen. Fallen? Yes, fallen. Number two, repent. That means it's not too late if you're backslidden. I want to say that again in case you are backslidden or listening and you feel like you're backslidden. You're not dead yet, okay? And as long as you're still alive, you can still turn course and get get back and make it right. Repent and do the first work. Well, what's the first work? What is the first commandment? Well, thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength, with all your soul. That's the first one. Or else... I got that underlined. Or else. Or else what? Or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand 
from its place unless you repent? What? Yes. I can't dance around the scripture. I'm not going to try to. Or else there is, I'm going to remove you from that place. I'll give you just one more. Turn the page in in Revelation 3, 2 to 6 to the church of Sardis. Verse 3 says, Remember therefore how you received and hold fast and then he calls them to repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, how many churches today in our country are not watching for our Lord's return? They're not. Most of them are filled in their old backslidden ways, doing what they want to do. I will come to you as a thief. That's how the rapture is going to happen. In a moment and twinkling of an eye when you least expect it. Are you going to be watching when it happens? And you will not know what hour I will come. Last Sunday I told you the first day of Jesus' coming and the last day. We know them both. But we do not know the day or the hour of the rapture. You have a few names in Sardis who have not defiled their garments and walk with me in white for they are worthy. He who overcomes. Now what does this mean? Let me just say it simply. Brothers and sisters in Christ, what is an overcomer? Somebody who continues to hang on to the Lord Jesus Christ as their only means of salvation. That makes you an overcomer. Somebody want to say amen? That's as simple as it is. You can't do anything to add to your salvation, right? So he says, hang on. And don't, he said it to to the church. He says, any man putting his hand to the plow and looks back. That's That's a backslider looking back. Is not fit for the kingdom. But then he takes it a step further. He who overcomes will be clothed in white and then I will not blot his name out of the book of life. Why would he even say it unless it was possible? That's my question. Why would he even say it unless it was possible? I will not dance around this scripture. The way I see the scriptures, all you have to do is hang in there. And uh, don't be worried about the works. Uh, Producing fruit as a Christian is as easy as hanging out with Jesus. Do you know that? Producing fruit as a Christian is as easy as walking and talking with the Lord, enjoying his fellowship, and all of a sudden things just start to happen. Acts 2 says that the Lord then added to the church daily as they were simply going about having fellowship and Bible studies and prayer meetings, and then God began to work because that's the environment he has chosen to work in. I'm in trouble. I'm past my time. I'm setting this up. I'm going to read one page from our speaker, Robert Congdon, who's going to be Skyped in, either from England or if he's stateside, about the new Calvinism. And it's only a paragraph long, so don't get too freaked out here. But what this has been around and been going on since the 1600s. But this is titled The New Calvinism and the, the Millennial Generation and the Perfect Storm. And I'll close with, with a quote from him. He says, Paul warned the Galatians by telling them that another gospel that was not the gospel of salvation by grace alone would creep into the church. When new Calvinism, and he'll explain new Calvinism when, we, when he does this topic, when new Calvinism enters the church, this soon happens because the Calvinist teaching on election eliminates the need to proclaim the gospel. For individuals have already been chosen to be saved, or alternatively left or chosen to be damned, by a God who is sovereign over all man's will. I have gone into this in much greater depths in my book, The New Calvinism Upside Down Gospel. I regularly receive phone calls from concerned Christians who tell me that their church is no longer preaching the gospel of salvation, but has replaced it with the social gospel. Missions are declining as church sees no need to support gospel-preaching missionaries as those who are socially-minded replace them. The globally and socially-minded millennial, he's referring to this generation of young people, agree with and promote this change. The church, however, is no longer obeying the Lord's command to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. I couldn't um, warn you about what I just read without naming some names. So 
Here are those that are buying into um, this new um, Calvinism that does away with the gospel of Jesus Christ and are replacing it with good work social programs. James Kennedy, who's no longer with us, James White, John MacArthur, John Piper, J.I. Packard, R.C. Scroll, Albert Moeller, Tim Keller, John Piper, Richard Foster, Mark Drisco, Matthew Henry, Albert Moeller, Alistair Beggs, and the group that they're all sort of meeting around, and I, wanted, I want you to do your homework, is called the Gospel Coalition. Alistair Beggs is one of the key leaders in it, and its, its goal is to introduce uh, Calvinism and so forth into all this. I wish I had another hour. I don't. I'm past my time. We better stand and pray at this point. You've been preordained before the foundation of the world to stand at exactly this time. And Just kidding. <laughs> Lord, there's so much to take in as we try to find the balance in, in what your word says on these issues. Lord, please help us see that this is not a history lesson between Arminianism and Calvinism, but that in our own day it's, it's morphed into a social gospel that has replaced the true gospel that you've charged us to deliver to the world. Lord, we just here want our people to be equipped for every good work so that they can do the work of ministry. So Lord, bless by your spirit to those here this morning these doctrines so that it would be clear to them. We thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen.